It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. In today's episode, I am talking to the science writer, Meehan Christ, about Thomas Malthus and his theory of population. Why is someone who about so much was so wrong still so influential in political, social and moral arguments today? Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Listeners can subscribe to Europe's leading literary magazine for a special rate at lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. I recorded this conversation with Meehan last week. She was in New York. I was in London. We are going to cover a lot, including a lot of issues in contemporary politics. But we started with Malthus himself and the question of who he was and what he said. Meehan, Malthus, Thomas Malthus is someone who still gets talked about a lot. Uh, His name gets bandied about. And it's quite surprising in some ways, the essay for which he's best known, his essay on population. It's 225 years old. And as we'll talk about, in many ways, it was wrong. And yet he's still everywhere. And Malthusian has become an adjective. He's a bit like Orwell, I feel. Orwellian has become an adjective. Um, and you forget that there was a person behind the adjective. So before we get on to what he thought and why he was wrong, or if there are any ways in which he wasn't wrong, Let's start with the man himself. Who was Thomas Malthus? Give us a a brief sketch of the guy behind the adjective. Yeah. So Thomas Robert Malthus was an 18th century cleric and a professor of political economy. So he was born in 1766. He was the sixth child out of seven, uh, and his father was a a moderately wealthy country gentleman who was a bit eccentrically intellectual for the time. He was friendly with folks like David Hume and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And when Malthus was about 20, he graduated from Cambridge with a degree in mathematics. And the same year, he took holy orders in the Church of England, and he was soon appointed to a rectory. So he was a devout Christian and a parish priest who would also become one of the first professors of political economy. And I think it's worth saying also that he lived at a really tumultuous moment in history in ways that I think really shaped this essay. So his adolescence was marked by the transformations of the European Enlightenment and the American and French revolutions, as well as the Industrial Revolution in Britain, which took place from about 1760 to 1840. This was a time when The emerging capitalist system was really driving manufacturing and creating considerable wealth, but also left a significant portion of Britain's population really desperately poor. And this was also a time of rapid population growth across Europe, particularly among the poor. This was because birth rates were very high and improved public health and disease prevention, as well as better access to medicine were lowering the death rate and sort of together creating this overall surge in population growth. And many of his contemporaries, including people like Hume and Adam Smith, were 
really deeply interested in interrogating the relationships among population and governance and wealth. Um, you know, how, how should a country be really was this very open question. And there were all kinds of debates across Europe and particularly the American colonies about benefits or harms of a growing population to the state. And some were very optimistic about large population growth. They would even say it was necessary for a healthy nation. Um, so you have these ideas, you know, coming in from France and this heady possibility of the endless perfection of human society through rational thought. Um, and you also have these relatively new ideas that are sort of coming up through through colonialism and empire about race and the quote unquote natural order of human hierarchies. And as if that were not enough, Malthus also lived during the tail end of this global climate event that was known as the Little Ice Age, which was a period roughly 1500 to 1850. And during this time, temperatures dropped by as much as two degrees Celsius. So you had ice and really freezing temperatures across the northern hemisphere. And this brought about an agricultural crisis that lasted nearly 180 years and which absolutely wreaked havoc on European harvests. So when Malthus was composing this essay, the relationships among food, population, poverty, and, you know, quote unquote, natural hierarchies were very much in the air. And as you say, the central theme that the essay is arguing against is what was called the perfectibility thesis, the idea that progress could be tracked out towards some ideal endpoint. And it was wrapped up with arguments coming from France. So Condorcet is one of the people that Malthus is attacking, but also radicals in Britain. Godwin is yes. the other person who's central in this essay. They're associated with this idea of perfectibility and progress. And the core idea of the essay is that this is wishful thinking because it runs up against what for Malthus are essentially laws of nature, one law about human reproduction and the other law about subsistence, what we can get from nature to keep ourselves alive. And the core argument is that these two things pull against each other. Yeah. And this, I think, is it's one of those interesting sort of misinterpretations of Malthus that there's this idea that overpopulation will lead sort of eventually to disaster. But his idea was really that there are always already too many people. That is the natural God-given order of things because of this relationship, this relationship between human population growth, which he saw as being exponential. So one, two, four, eight, you know, it grows at that kind of rate. While food resources or our ability to to create food for ourselves, grows at a slower, more linear rate, one, two, three, four. So population will always naturally, in his mind, because this is a kind of natural law like gravity, population will always grow faster than the ability to produce food. So there's always going to be some group of people, the poor, who are pushing up against the limits of our ability to produce food. And there's always going to be a degree of misery and famine sort of cyclically upon us. So this is the human condition. And in a way, it's as you say, it's a kind of fatalistic argument. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot that we can do about it. And a lot of the focus is on the poor. So in the essay, there's quite a lot of writing about uh, the poor laws and, and the ways in which uh, the state is and isn't responsible for the poor in the light of the fact that there is nothing that can be done about that contrast, as you described it, between, I think he calls it geometrical mm -hmm. and arithmetical laws. There will always yeah. be too many people. But there's an assumption there, which 
I suppose if there's one thing that with hindsight, it looks like he was fundamentally wrong about, this is cyclical. So when there is more food, there will be more people beyond the point where there isn't enough food, at which point there will have to be fewer people and the result will be misery. So it goes in these these great waves, these ups and downs. But his assumption was that the natural human response to plenty, to being comfortable, to being well off, is to have lots of children. And the natural human response to scarcity of there not being enough to eat is to have fewer children. So in the end, the poor will have to, by some means or other, maybe very brutal means, have fewer children. It may be death. It may be mm -hmm. what he calls vice, or which I think he means by which he means contraception, or simply the thing I think that he preferred, which is just delaying getting married. That's the thing that history suggests he was wrong about. It's a sort of economic misunderstanding, because actually the evidence seems to be that when people are prosperous and well off, and this is certainly the evidence of the last 150 years, they have fewer children. And when people are really struggling, it often is rational, it makes sense to have more children. He got it the wrong way around. He thought that the natural human response to plenty was to procreate, and to scarcity was not to have kids. What we've seen is that when people are really well off, they stop having kids. Yeah, it's there are many things about humans and and social organization that he got wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and this is one of the big ones is that the the natural condition if there's more food and again he's entirely focused on food. He is not looking at social conditions. He's not looking at politics in this kind of broader sense of the way that it that politics affect family and decisions. It's literally always about food and procreation. And he really does think that more food makes people have more babies. And he was not alone in that. I think Adam Smith said yeah. something like, you know, it, it's the natural state for basically rich families to have more children because they can provide for them, basically. And he also, as you say, was wrong about this idea that having less food resources would produce fewer children. I don't think that he was including contraception in his idea of what would happen if there was less food. I really think that he thought those children would starve and die. Because he, he saw these sort of three main checks to human population growth. One was misery, including starvation and disease. Another was vice, and that included things like war. And the final one was moral restraint or abstinence. Because as a devout Christian, he was fiercely opposed to birth control. So he, he just doesn't factor that into his calculus. So I may have misread it, but because he does say misery and vice, and you, you <laughs> find yourself thinking when you read it, what does he mean by vice? Right. Um, and so I partly understood that to be what they would have called back then vicious sexual practices, right. i.e. non-procreative sex. Right. So whatever that means, I mean, by contraception, you know, I'm not thinking in a sort of contemporary sense, but he believed that human beings are going to seek out sex. Sex naturally, he believes in God's order, leads to children. But when it can't lead to children because there's not enough food, right. where does it go? I was assuming by vice, and I may have misread it, that that included all of the things that he would think was vicious sex, i.e. non-procreative sex. Right. However you do it. I, you know, I have no view about what he thought were the means. But you think vice means war here? I think it means more things like war. And I know that what he was trying to put forward was something like a natural law. And for him contraception was inherently unnatural. And mm. perhaps I'm reading it wrong as well, but but I had always thought that in his own kind of 
Christian utopian way of looking at the world. He was trying to see a world in which contraception was not part of the equation because ethically it should not be. It is part of the argument here is that when there are too many people, something has to give. And what has to give is mm -hmm. the number of people. So the number of people has to come down. It can come down because the people who are alive die. And they can die through famine. They can die through, through war, through natural, all of the natural disasters that can befall human beings. Or the number of people comes down because human beings have fewer children. Right. They can delay having children. They can avoid having children. Well, I think to your point before about the idea that if there's not enough food, you know, people will have fewer children. It's not necessarily that they will have fewer children, that, but because of there will be high death rates among children, fewer of them will live to maturity. So in a sense, they will end up having fewer children. And as we see today, there's a sense in which this holds true that in countries where or regions where there is endemic poverty, economic systems are, do not support people being able to work and make a living, families tend to have more children because there's a kind of calculus that says we need to have at least you know two or three make it to adulthood so that they can support us in our old age because we don't have other economic options. Therefore, we need to have five, six, seven children in the hopes that not only that some of them will survive, but that at least one, maybe two of the ones that do survive will have some kind of economic success that will carry the rest of us through. Yeah. And, and in a sense, that was, this is the puzzle. So he, he assumes that under conditions of scarcity, as well as people dying, there will be some form of restraint. And yet, as you say, and the evidence bears this out, the economics don't work like that. There is a rational, self-interested motive among human beings to have more children under those conditions, right. not fewer children. But the other side of it, the thing that I suppose at the most basic level he was wrong about, just this basic Christian natural assumption that a flourishing human life, so under conditions in which you are not constrained by scarcity, inevitably is a very procreative yes. life. So yes. one in which two human beings will have five, six, seven, mm -hmm. I don't know, 10, 12 children. And all of the evidence of the last century plus is that as societies get richer and as people, and particularly women, have more economic opportunities and educational opportunities, so all of the things that Malthus might say are signs that things are going well, the number of children comes down. And in a way, that's the thing, the most fundamental thing that he seems mm -hmm. to have got wrong. There is no natural law that says prosperity equals procreation. Right. If there is a law, it seems to be the reverse. He also got wrong the food production part of the equation, which, you yeah. know, he he didn't see any way for us to increase our capacity to produce food from the earth, which, by the way, he saw as potentially sort of limitless. He, he wasn't concerned about hard ecological limits in the way that some people are today. He was really concerned about our ability to harness the fruits of the earth, and we could only do so at a particular speed. But of course, we saw there were really two things happened that sort of messed with his equation. One is medicine and the the fact that people could live longer and that babies could also live. So that totally messes with his sort of population numbers. And the other is fossil fuel use and the resulting green revolution, which just, you know, exploded our ability to produce food faster. So in terms of whether these things are natural laws, 
no, they're just not. We can produce food at different rates and humans procreate in ways and in rates that he did not foresee at all. So in a way, that takes us back to the puzzle that I started with. Here's this guy who is very much of his time, and his time is a long time ago. He's writing just in the aftermath of the French Revolution. He's writing as a devout Christian. He has a view about God's natural order, and he makes a prediction on the basis of that, a set of predictions, which turn out to be, in all of the important ways, wrong. And yet, Malthus and Malthusianism live. People talk about him. Uh, some people still want to argue that there is something in there that we need to pay attention to. It's on the whole, I think, a term of abuse. People mm -hmm. accuse each other of being Malthusian. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, there is a kind of right Malthusianism. I mean, right wing, not mm -hmm. correct. Right Malthusianism and a sort of left Malthusianism, although I don't know if it's the right word. So I think there's always been a strand on the right of people who take from Malthus the idea that there are too many poor people. <laughs> the, the the sense, I mean, the, the crassest and crudest and most brutal part of his argument, which is that, and he says it explicitly right at the beginning of the essay, this, this primarily is about the poor mm -hmm. and the tendency of the poor under certain conditions to have too many children. And there's an echo of that through political argument from then Absolutely. to now. Absolutely. There always has been, right? There are always some people who will buy what's being sold there. And I think this goes back to his argument about the poor laws. So it was very interesting for people of the day in debates over population and governance and wealth, this issue of state aid to the poor. Um, and Malthus used his theory to argue for what he called the gradual abolition of state-supported food aid, which at that point was being provided via the British poor laws. So these were laws that were essentially social programs that were designed to feed and house this growing population of British citizens who were living in poverty. And because Malthus saw poverty as both natural and inevitable, he saw British authorities who were extending this kind of aid as really just making the problem worse. They were encouraging more babies to be born and be born into conditions that might be made semi-tolerable in the short term in the sense that the babies might live because they were receiving this aid, but they would only lead to greater misery in the future because then you have more people who are facing starvation and death, which he sees as inevitable over time. And so the idea you know, that people found so horrifying in this essay when it first appeared and, and why it's still sometimes used as a kind of an epithet is that state aid to the poor is basically wrongheaded and we should just let people starve. That's the fundamental argument. And there's a version of that in yes. Dickens's Christmas Scrooge Carol, right? Says Scrooge it, yes. articulates exactly that point of view. That's right. that's bad Malthusianism. And, and, and it's, you know, this it's this sort of counterintuitive idea that state aid to the poor was is going to actually have the opposite of its intended effect, right? It's prolonging the inevitable and creating conditions for more human suffering, which you hear this kind of argument today from the right all the time, right? We can't give people money because it's actually going to make them make their situation worse somehow. It's going to create more suffering by giving them this money. What you need to do is cut it off and, you know, force people into doing more work or eating less, <laughs> you know, doing the things they need to do to get by without the aid of the state. And it's it's a really brutal politics and a brutal calculus. 
And it does include force them to have fewer children because there is a strand of it which really is Malthusian, the idea that the welfare state encourages particularly single mothers, this is the view from the right, to have children that they wouldn't otherwise be able to have because they wouldn't be able to afford it and therefore creating lives for those children that are nowhere near the kinds of lives that would be possible under more what you might call right. disciplined conditions. Yes. That is a Malthusian argument, and you do hear it in 21st and, century and politics. It runs, there's a thread of this that runs all through the 20th century as well when you look at sort of global efforts at international population control. And these are efforts that are sort of coordinated among international elites and also within countries among international elites. And so you end up with things like... I think it's 35% of the women in Puerto Rico of childbearing age were forcibly sterilized by the United States government. The argument being they're too poor, there's no work, they shouldn't be having babies, basically. They can't support them. And so what we're going to do is make sure that they don't have those babies. There is also, and I don't know if Malthusian is the right word for it, for some of the reasons that you've already said, but something that can be characterized as left Malthusianism, which tends now to be focused Mm -hmm. on the climate crisis and the idea that there is a hard limit at some point to the amount of human beings that the planet can sustain and that therefore overpopulation is a looming problem. And this sometimes gets associated with a version of the Malthusian doctrine, but it seems Mm -hmm. like quite a stretch, not least because, as you said at the beginning, The Malthus argument is not, if we carry on like this, we will reach disaster. The Malthus argument is, this is what it means to be human, to face this all the time. Whereas the arguments that people are having now about, should people have children? Is it a moral or ethical choice? Uh, Can the planet sustain a growing population? Is about a point coming in the future where this is no longer sustainable. So is it a mistake even to think of that as a a kind of neo-Malthusian argument? I think it's a misreading of Malthus. And I think that, you know, how many of us today have actually gone back and read the essay and really looked at what he said? And how many of us throw around the term Malthusian, right? People think they know what it means and don't always. And so I would say it's more of a gestural understanding of Malthus than an actual sort of deep appropriation or bringing forward of his ideas. But I think what's interesting is part of the reason it gets used is that this argument is deeply, deeply embedded in the ways that we think about human populations and the possibilities of social organization. And so even if today you have never read Malthus, you've never thought about Malthus, you're not an environmentalist who cares about these things, it's kind of in you. It's kind of embedded in you somewhere because it has become so much part of the water that we're swimming in. And this is partly because through the the 20th century, you had this neo-Malthusian resurgence. So you have some of the most famous people like ecological Malthusians like Paul Ehrlich or Garrett Hardin, who saw natural resources as finite and saw the threat of, quote unquote, overpopulation as existential. And this was a really, really popular idea, this idea that overpopulation is somehow a great threat, you know, sort of peaked in the late 60s and early 70s and disappeared a little bit under the radar toward the end of the century and seems to be sort of coming back now. And we have this kind of new neo-Malthusian wave which again is not specifically tied to Malthusian arguments about food production and population, but they're linked rather to that overpopulation panic of the 20th century 
that has all kinds of tendrils, you know, back going back toward Malthus. And so today we get some people who are concerned about the climate crisis and ecological breakdown more broadly, arguing that human population is either the main driver or one of a few key drivers of global heating and ecological disasters, both local and global. And it's worth saying that there's also two, at least two strands of contemporary anti-Malthusianism. The first is a broadly leftist anti-Malthusianism that basically says social change can both alleviate suffering and help the environment. And this position might be associated with something like eco-socialism or socialist utopianism. Um, if if it has a forebear, it's it's Godwin, <laughs> right? You know, or or Concorde, one of these kind of utopian thinkers who Malthus was arguing with. The second is a sort of broadly rightist anti-Malthusianism which is associated with certain pro-capitalist think tanks like the Breakthrough Institute. Um, and these folks tend to be techno-optimists, and many of them are self-proclaimed eco-modernists. Basically, they're pro-capitalism, pro-markets, and they believe that more people is a good thing. More population is not a problem because more people means more ideas. They're very into innovation. Innovation is this big buzzword. You know, we get more innovation if we have more people innovating. Um, and don't worry about population because free markets are going to solve all our ecological problems and technology is going to make it all go away. So all of this is to say that, you know, Malthus wrote this essay, as you said, more than two centuries ago. But his thinking or strands of his thinking or sort of broad picture strokes of his thinking about population or food or environment – are really still permeating the ways that very contemporary discourses are chewing through the possibilities of improving human societies. I want to come back to the, the, the right anti-Malthusianism and, and what you were saying about you know, that view that more people is a good thing, because uh, there are lots of weird and interesting and sort of <laughs> distinctive strands to that, some of right. which swirl around Elon Musk, who's, you know, who's sort of doing his own little bit to keep mm -hmm. the number of people up. Um, but we'll come on to him. On the other side, that, that question you hear asked a lot, and you've written about this, is it ethical, is it moral to have children in a world which seems to be reaching its limit of its ability to sustain us? And you know, our insatiable appetites are driving a kind of natural disaster that adding more people to whatever that equation is feels like it'll accelerate our reaching the tipping point. And one of the ways in which that doesn't feel like it can be connected back to Malthus is, as you said earlier, when we were talking about contraception, for Malthus, it could never be an ethical choice not to have right. children. You know, it's, it's a tragedy that the children that you have will die. And that's, you know, and then you have to find a way as a Christian to square that with the idea mm -hmm. of a benign God. And he does try and do that at the end of the essay. Mm -hmm. It's not particularly convincing. But the idea that it would be the ethical choice not to is not something that Malthus is going to contemplate, but that tends to be how it's framed now. How would you characterize that that version of the argument that you hear now, which is the responsible thing to do, the moral thing to do, is not to have children? I think the first thing that needs to be said is that there are many versions of that kind of stance. It's not just one version. It's People make that kind of argument for a lot of different reasons. I think that there are sort of three reasons that it is coming up right now. One being that people are afraid about our impact on the planet, right? And so they fear for the the 
footprint of the child that they might bear on the earth. And the second would be fear. So that's think of that as fear for the planet, right? The second one is sort of fear for the child. The idea of bringing a child into this world at a moment when we seem destined for chaos and breakdown and food shortages and migration crises and and you know what what would it be like for that child to be alive the third is really fear for oneself the idea that it would be too hard too scary too overwhelming to be a parent of a child at this particular moment and those three different anxieties lead to very different political positions or arguments around solutions. Some, sometimes they're overlapping, sometimes they're not overlapping, but it's sort of a complex terrain, I think. I think that there can be a moral and ethical argument that goes back from any one of those particular anxieties. Yeah. Um, and to be clear, I don't personally feel that it is my role to tell anyone whether they should or should not have children. <laughs> you know, if if these are real anxieties that one has and one decides not to have a child, that seems like a valid choice to me. Having children is an entirely irrational, not entirely irrational, it's a fairly irrational choice. <laughs> uh, and it is not a choice for everyone. And this is part of the problem of framing this as a moral or ethical issue, because you exempt most of the people in the world from participating in that moral framework because they don't have the choice to have children or not have children. And so for me, that's where some of it, the, the moralism around it breaks down because then what, it's immoral to be poor, right? We're back kind of at Malthus. And as you said, a lot of those arguments turn on an idea or an understanding which is contested, but increasingly people share it, that there is something about being alive now as you said, at this moment, which makes these questions acute, uh, you know, to be a generation of childbearing age now and to think about what it would mean to bring a child into the world who would be alive in 50 years' time and the possibility of there being a huge gulf between those experiences. That's not Malthusian at all. No. Ma you know, Malthus, it's all natural. It's, it, there isn't a moment in time where this becomes a problem. This is a problem across time for all time. We are the generations that feel there's something about our situation in the long human story which is unique. And like you say, there could be all sorts of arguments around that. It's a mistake to think of them as Malthusian. In many ways, if we think there's something unique about our situation, we've left Malthus behind. I agree. And also that the kernel here that matters, I think, is population. If population is the problem, then the solution is about having less babies. It's about women's bodies and fertility and fewer humans on the planet. If the problem, for example, would be fossil fuel use or resource extraction or capitalism, right? Different solutions are proposed. Um, and this, I mean, and this has been argued again as far back as when Malthus was writing the essay. Engels wrote this really scathing critique of the essay in which he basically said the problem is not people, the problem is capitalism. <laughs> you know, this we can solve this. We don't need to let people die. And so today when people are sort of formulating this problem and thinking about this very intimate personal choice of should I have a child or not, it's there's still an assumption that population is the thing that's the problem. You know, what if it were possible to have a carbon neutral child, for example? 
Should you still not have children? And then on the other side, where capitalism is not the problem, capitalism right. is the solution, sort of turbocharged capitalism, there are, again, as you said, lots of different strands to this. So there is a view that this is about a kind of dynamic, explosive quality that happens when you get lots and lots of people together. You know, new stuff sort of springs, not natural, but artificial ideas and indeed artificial techniques will spring out of there being more people. There is a techno-utopianism behind it. But there's also, and you see this, so I've been reading a bit around Elon Musk and I've been on Twitter following the people that he follows to see what the world looks like if you follow the people that Elon Musk follows. And it's pretty it's a interesting. terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, this is one of the themes. There are other sure. themes which we could get into, but we're not on this podcast. Uh, but one of the themes is not having children is immoral. It's actually wicked. Uh, you know, we all have an obligation to reproduce at a rate that means that there are more people, not fewer people. But that this connects with a whole series of ideas that have deep roots and some of them quite sinister roots to do with preserving the value of civilization. And you know, the language that's used around this is that we're falling below the replacement rate um, and therefore we are dying off. And a lot depends on who we are here because that's not true in many parts of the world which are not falling below the replacement rate. But there is a strand here which says, but the thing that matters is, this is the phrase that would be used, Western civilization. And Western civilization is falling below the replacement rate for the reasons that Malthus was wrong about, as we got more prosperous, better educated, richer, we had fewer and fewer kids. That is a really you know, significant strand around that body of thinking. It's there, it's present, you see it. If you go on mm -hmm. bits of Twitter, yes. quite large <laughs> chunks of Twitter, it's bouncing around a lot. And particularly at the moment, I mean, I think, you know, recent months and years, this has become much more visible. You have to have more kids because otherwise we're not going to replace ourselves. Right. And I think it's really important to to note, as you say, that almost any argument about pronatalism, about the need for more children, and also almost any argument really about overpopulation, the problem is always other people's babies and other people, right? The solution, when the solution is more of, quote unquote, our babies, um, it tends to be certain types of babies. <laughs> and with Elon Musk and the folks around him, again, there, it's not even just one strain. There's not a coherent view, but there is a, a melange of really fascinating and horrifying arguments about intelligence being inherited, first of all, which we can go into all kinds of arguments about biological determinism and why that's not necessarily a thing. But there's this idea that basically rich, well-educated people should be having babies. Interestingly, that the race thing doesn't play into this in ways that you might immediately expect. It's sort of more complicated. There's this very uh, this veneer of kind of social liberalism around this, this plurality of like, we don't care whose babies are the ones who are wealthy and educated, but those are definitely the ones who should be basically propagating forward and also ruling human civilization because we have the best ideas and we are going to take good care of things and leave it to us. And of course, in this strand, the people who are wealthy and educated but are not having babies right. are women. 
I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, it takes two to tango here, or however it happens. But the theme of this is that what's gone wrong is that women are increasingly choosing not to have children. And it's men, on the whole, who are saying this is a problem. Yeah. And, and in this new view, again, you have multiple kind of strains here. You have everything from the kind of quiverful movement, which is a sort of far right, um, you should have as many babies as possible for the good of Western civilization and Christian civilization in particular. It's a very Christian nationalist, patriarchal, the place of the woman is to stay home and fulfill their greatest possible role, which is to create new citizens for this great nation. (laughs) Everything from that to the kind of Elon Musk version where women don't necessarily have to stay home, in part because they're really interested in assisted reproduction technologies and ways of increasing procreation that don't necessarily force women into sort of binary patriarchal roles. The reality is that men tend to have more power and tend to be in control of decisions while women are having children, even if those women are also educated and would see themselves as fiercely feminist. It gets really complicated because you don't have these clean, right, left, liberal, conservative kind of divides. The strands all get mixed up into these weird new concoctions where there's all these very old ideas coming out in this, the kind of crucible of this new moment. Mihan, you said earlier, and I plead guilty to this, that people bandy around the term Malthusian without having read the original <laughs> essay. So that's me. But for this podcast, I did read the essay. And and actually, I had a similar experience a few weeks ago. So we did an episode about the Turing test. And for that one, I read, and, and it was with John Lanchester, among others, and he also read the original Turing essay that contains the argument about the Turing test. And what one tends to discover going back to these original texts is that there's so much more going on in them than the idea for which they're best known. And I think this is true with Malthus as well. So Turing turned out to have a weirder, richer, more complicated understanding of what it means to be human than you would get just from knowing what the Turing test is. And Malthus has got all sorts of things to say, which aren't just about the population equation, which is the central idea. So I'm just going to run through a few of these. Just I'd be fascinated to hear your your take on them. So one of them is in his argument against the perfectibility thesis mm-hmm. that people like Godwin. He says one of the problems is that human beings, there's no evidence that human beings are ever going to go off sex. He mm-hmm. just says that. You know, that the, it's, it's a natural part of who we are. And if we're happy, if we're prosperous, if we're stable, if we're secure, we will want to have more sex. And that will mean more babies. It's just a law of nature. Another theme of recent argument, uh, it's a sort of 21st century anxiety, maybe even third decade of the 21st century anxiety is that young people have Mm -hmm. gone off sex (laughs) after (laughs) a long period where it looked like Malthus was right. Whatever else he was wrong about, people still seem to want to have sex, maybe in what he would call a a vice-like way, but whatever. But it's not part of the perfectibility thesis. You know, it's not sort of we have progressed to such a sophisticated point that it's it's a sort of miserableist thesis that young people in some ways are so isolated or miserable or hooked up to machines that have dissociated them from their own bodies or other people's bodies. But the thing that Malthus says, the one thing he's sure will never happen 
Is there any evidence that it actually might be happening, that human beings are going off sex? It's such an interesting question. And I I find the discussion around this really interesting. And a lot of the publications that I read about this, or a lot of the articles that I read about this, seem to be laced with this kind of whiff of panic that always gives me a little bit of pause and yeah. makes me wonder, like, what are the actual studies? What are they actually what are the questions that are actually being asked of young people? And I should say, I haven't looked deeply into the methodology of these studies that say rates of teen sex are dropping. But there are a few signs that suggest maybe those studies aren't telling us quite what they think they're telling us. And it's partly because of the way I think questions are designed. There's a trade-off in questions that are being asked over a very, very long period of time. You want to be consistent in those questions because once you start changing the questions, it's hard to compare present to past. However, sex means very different things to young people today than young people of 30, 40 years ago. Young people tend to be more queer and they're more likely to consider sex, you know, quote unquote sex, to be a wider range of activities, not just heterosexual intercourse between a man and a woman. So it's very hard, I think, probably for the researchers to sort of update the questions, to update the actual, the reality of the sexual lives of young people. I also think that young people have sex lives that are heterogeneous and digital in ways that I don't know that the questions can actually capture. And then, of course, in recent years, you also have the pandemic, which just really messed with teen lives in so many ways. And yet, also, maybe they're having less sex. You know, <laughs> they may be more aware of, you know, STDs. I and mean, there's, there's nothing that makes me feel more geriatric than sort of uh, postulating about teenagers having sex. But, um, you know, it's entirely possible that that is happening. Um, I also think that these studies are mostly about American teens, if I'm correct. And some of what we're seeing that's really interesting is happening, you know, in terms of Malthusian assurances that sex will always be had. <laughs> um, some of the interesting things that we're seeing are more international, something like Korea's 4B movement, right? So 4B is, it's both an ideology and a lifestyle. And it's 4B is shorthand for four Korean words that all start with the prefix B, which means no. The first no is the refusal of heterosexual marriage. So already Malthus is like blown out of the water right there. He's like, but this is yeah, the, he'd be, the apex he'd be very of all sad human. About that. He would be so sad. I mean, not just sad, he would be horrified, I think. The second no is the refusal of childbirth. So again, he would just be confounded by this. Why would you refuse to have children? This is what everyone wants, right? The third is the refusal of dating. And the fourth is the rejection of heterosexual sexual relationships. And some of this can even extend to platonic relationships where women are really cutting off relationships with men in many complicated ways. So in terms of the passion between the sexes, you know, Malthus acknowledged individual exceptions, but he really doesn't seem to have imagined or anticipated coordinated social movements that are organized around the rejection of that which he held most dear and which he saw to be natural and God-given, being heterosexual marriage, childbirth, and sex, which he just saw as something that was always going to happen. He, he wasn't very good, at, like I said before, at bringing social factors into play and, in fact, sort of re rejected an understanding of social factors in terms of how people intimately relate to each other. Of course, we can't fault him for this, right? He could not have imagined feminist movements and the sexual revolution, which are sort of centuries in the future from the time he was writing. But I do think that movements like 4B offer 
additional reasons to be very skeptical about the religious absolutism and the biological determinism of his arguments. You know, humans and our societies are far more flexible than he believed possible, which to me offers a, like, a bit of a locus of hope. Those social movements are just so beyond both his ken, but also I think mm -hmm. his instinctive sympathies. I imagine what he would say if he'd heard what you just said is, ah, oh, but there's a bit of that that's just up my street, the Malthusian mm. bit, which is the pandemic. If the pandemic has something to do with this, that is part of the, the ebb and flow of the natural order in which there are conditions under which population shrinks. I'm not saying that the sure. pandemic was caused by overpopulation. Of course it wasn't. But in Malthus's mind, disease is absolutely one of the things that sort of factors into this story. Human beings not having as much sex mm -hmm. under conditions of disease, he would say, that is the kind of thing I expected to happen. What I did not expect to happen was young Korean women to refuse to have anything to do with men that might lead to sex and children. So there's always yeah. a bit of him that, that is still there in these in these natural stories. And then the social stuff is just, like you say, it blows him out of the water. Right. And also, we have to remember, he would have said the cause of those things, of disease and, you know, of of going off of sex, was a lack of food. The things that are happening today are not because yeah. of a lack of food or an under ability yeah. to produce food. There are much more complex things going on. So the last one I want to pick up on is another strand of the anti-perfectibility argument that he runs in the essay. Something else he says that won't happen is the natural human lifespan being extended. So among the people that he's arguing against is an assumption that you can sort of progress indefinitely through history and things can keep getting better. And he says you are always going to run up against hard natural limits. So food production is one, but longevity is another. And these naive people who think that human beings are just going to live longer and longer are wrong. So we live in a world where over the last 100 years, life expectancy has gone up in remarkable ways in places where it was at a level that Malthus would have recognized. So in China and in India, people are living much, much longer. Um, and it's happened over a generation. In China, it happened within the space of about a generation and a bit. But it still runs up against that hard limit. So there are many, many, many more people in the world who are 70, 80, 90 than they used to be. And when Malthus was alive, it would be very, very rare to live to be 80. And now in lots of parts of the world, there are lots of octogenarians and older. But the hard limit is probably still there. I mean, no one has ever probably lived to be more than 120. But there are increasing numbers of people who think that that limit is about to go. <laughs> that the the perfectible right. perfectibilists, whatever you want to call them, were right. We just didn't wait long enough, and that would change everything. You know, I sometimes think the difference between a world in which hundreds of millions of people are living to be seventy, eighty, ninety, and a world in which even one person lives to be two hundred is huge. Yeah, vastly different worlds. And some of those people on Elon Musk's Twitter feed <laughs> are thinking about the second as right. the next stage of this. And I have no idea if it's true. I have no idea if aging is about to be conquered. I have no idea if the natural limits of the human lifespan are about to be breached. But there are enough people in the world who think there are that we should take it seriously. And if that does happen, it's another way in which, you know, as were the things that Malthus was talking about, suddenly bite now. So interestingly, on the question of sort of increasing human lifespan, he was sort of open-minded. He, 
he felt like, sure, we might live to be a bit longer, a bit longer. He was thinking about this in terms of breeding, right? That you can breed certain qualities into plants and animals and, you know, maybe you could breed things into humans like longer lifespan. However, he was absolutely against the idea and it was a very specific utopian vision that was put forward by Godwin, where he was sort of arguing that lifespan might just be extended indefinitely. And Malthus was like, that is absurd. Hmm. You know, saying that we might live longer is not the same thing as saying human lifespan could go infinitely and, you know, there is no end. And and I and I think the way the way that he put it was you can breed you know, pigs or cows to be bigger and healthier, but they're not going to keep getting bigger. You know, at a certain point, you reach the limit. Right. You're not going to get 20-foot big pigs. and Right. He has these sort of ad absurdum arguments yeah. that are like, you know, you're not going to get a flower that's a billion feet tall. They're, they're, yeah. At some point, it doesn't work. But, but it is true that, as you say, that people today are living a lot longer than people in previous generations. You know, life expectancy nearly doubled during the 20th century. And in the U.S. alone, I think we've seen a tenfold increase in the number of people who are age 65 or older. So now there's about, I think, 55, almost 56 million Americans who are in that age group. And that is a number that's expected to double in the next 25 years. So people who now are age 85 or older constitute the fastest growing segment of the U.S. population. This is, this is remarkable. This is actually unprecedented in human history. And the fact that people are living longer is actually at the heart of today's global population growth. You know, So this goes back to population and how it grows and why it grows. So we know that the global human population is growing at a fantastic rate. Right In 1800, the number of humans on Earth was 1 billion. This increased to 2.2 billion in 1950. Right, That's a long span of time to go from 1 to 2.2. After 1950, Global human population, quote unquote, exploded to 8 billion people um, who are alive today. Hence, some of the population panic in you know the decades after 1950, where you saw people being very concerned about these rates going up so quickly. At the same time, as you've also said, birth rates are falling across much of the world. Not all of the world, but very, very large swaths of the world. So Globally, the rate of population growth has been slowing since the 1960s, largely as a result of falling fertility rates in industrialized nations. But the total global population is continuing to increase, mostly because advances in medical care, reduced poverty, lower rates of disability, all of these things have contributed to people living much, much longer lives. And this is a fairly crude picture of demographics at the global level. If we look at demographics at a national level, the picture gets slightly more refined and even more interesting. And this is where you start to see anxieties about, quote unquote, population decline coming into focus, where you have people like Musk anxious about, you know, keeping population up and you have the Christian right concerned about, you know, replacement theory, all of this kind of stuff. So replacement fertility is this Goldilocks number of 2.1 births per woman. And at this rate, a human population doesn't grow or shrink. And I should say that while people of all genders can bear children, total fertility rates are always measured per woman. So below this replacement level of fertility, a population will shrink unless it's offset by migration. So it's sort of astonishing to think that two-thirds of all people in the world now live in countries with below replacement fertility. So by the end of the century, we could see populations in over 20 countries, including Japan, Italy, Thailand, Spain, 
shrinking by more than 50%. So this is happening. Populations are aging, and nationally, many populations are shrinking or on their way to shrinking. This is a state of human affairs that has not been seen any time in the past 700 years. So the last time global population shrank was the mid-14th century during the Black Plague. Yeah, and it's something that would not be comprehensible to Malthus, I think. So when if you think of a society like Japan, Malthus would have thought that a, a rich, prosperous society like that, with people living to be 70 or 80, when you reach that age, you would see spread out beneath you, mm-hmm. like your family tree, ever-increasing numbers of people. So for every great-grandmother or great-grandfather, there would be this sort of vast tribe that expanded beneath them. And the, the image is literally the opposite of that. People who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s in Japan look beneath them and they see fewer and fewer people mm-hmm. and fewer and fewer descendants. So it's not like one great-grandparent has 20 descendants. All of those great-grandparents are competing for the few people who right. are alive to look after them. I mean, it's the, it's, it's the inverse of the thing that Malthus would have imagined. The thing he couldn't have foreseen was this possibility of societies in which large numbers of very elderly people have no one, maybe in mm-hmm. Japan apart from the robots, to look after them. We're in a completely different world in that respect. I, I think he would also have been surprised by the unevenness of these trends, right? The the really notable exceptions to this trend of falling fertility can be found in parts of Asia and the Middle East. So places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Yemen, Kyrgyzstan, Mongolia, and particularly parts of Africa, and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's important to say also that falling fertility rates are uneven both within and across nations. So across race and class and geography, you know, in the U.S., fertility rates are falling much more quickly among certain groups and falling less quickly among, say, the poor than they are among the rich. Um, But as with the U.S., you know, Africa is not a monolith. It's this huge continent with myriad cultures and economies and internal inequalities. And so it's not that surprising to see differences in birth rates among regions and urban and rural areas often within the same country. But given all of that, it is fair to say that Africans, very broadly speaking, are now the fastest growing population in the world. So by the middle of this century, Africans will probably constitute about 25% of the global human population. And if these trends continue by 2100, the population of Africa is likely to be greater than, I think, 4.2 billion which means that Africans may constitute as much as 40% of all the humanity on Earth. And these kind of shifts were not something that Malthus anticipated or could have anticipated. And I should say demographers have fairly high confidence in these sort of estimates because many of the people whose children are going to drive population growth in this century have already been born. So barring some dramatic and unforeseen event, this really is the most likely demographic future. Of course, how people interpret these demographic facts and what stories they use these trends to tell and what politics they say these numbers support is something else entirely. And that's where we start to see the Elon Musks, the the Great Replacement, the liberal panic, <laughs> you know, uh, this this how do we how do we think about population today is um, a very open question. I would also say that 
if there is a lesson here from Malthus, 2100 is quite a long way away. I I accept that demographers feel they now have much more sophisticated models, but it still feels to me predicting even something as broad as the percentage of the global population that will be living in Africa in 2100 is a hostage to fortune. And Malthus, if we brought him back now and showed him just how wrong he was about almost everything, he might agree with that. He might say, be careful about thinking that you can project these trends forward. So he was tended to think in 25-year or generational cycles. And once you got two or three along that, he might think it gets much, much harder to right. know. And that would be the lesson he might take from the story that we've been talking about here. He projected into a future that turns out not to exist. And demographers certainly have been wrong, right? They, you know, even recently, the most recent sort of world population numbers, we were supposed to, the global population was supposed to go something to something like 11 point Two billion people, according to the UN. And those numbers got revised down to about 10 billion by 2100. They could get revised down again. Also, demographers did not foresee things like contraception in the middle of the 20th century. They did not foresee the sort of the end of the 1950s nuclear family as the social formation for all families and They did not foresee feminist revolutions. They did not see women in the workplace, right? So all of their projections in the 20th century turned out to be kind of wrong. And so I think you're exactly right for us to take these projections with a a bit of a grain of salt because human societies and people are just a lot more flexible and surprising than we often give them credit for. You can read Meehan Chris's essay, Is It Okay to Have a Child?, which was published in the LRB in 2020. And we will tweet the link to that. Do follow us, as always, at PPF Ideas. Is It Okay to Have a Child? is going to be a book. Look out for that. It's coming before too long. Next week on Past, Present, Future, I'm going to be talking to the writer Tara Westover and the philosopher Claire Chambers about a 19th century thinker, John Stuart Mill, and why he matters today. Do please join us for that. My name's David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.